ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 12, Hard Time. Describe Paul Pelletier. When I see Paul Pelletier at that time, how is Paul anyway? This is Yarmir John, a convicted drug trafficker, speaking from a maximum security prison outside Cali, Colombia. You should talk to him. Yeah, we spoke with him. He's doing fine. Yeah? Yeah. How is my buddy Paulie? <laughs> He's still skinny and everything? Yeah, he got family. Yarmir John is asking about a man who put him away for 18 years, federal prosecutor Paul Pelletier. He's one tough cookie, this Paul. He's one tough prosecutor. He was a skinny young guy. I'm looking at this, I'm paying a 200,000 to attorney. If he's going to fight the guy, makes 15 grand a year. Do something. Guy did nothing, you know. <laughs> so Paul Pelletier worked his case with all the guys. I don't know, he got about 120 guys or something. I don't even know. He said, we're the part of the link, part of the chain. Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex DeCubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they ever catch him, he's going away for the rest of his life. If they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail, or evil ends up dead. Welcome to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. My name is John Fish. I'm a producer for ESPN. And I'm Brett Forrest, a senior writer at ESPN The Magazine. Two episodes ago, if you remember, Alex DeCubis and his crew were at the top of their game. They were smuggling in tons of cocaine for Julio Nasser using the 250-foot freighter, the Nerma, to do it. Alex had outsmarted the feds. But they figured it out. They cracked Alex's crew. I've always wondered, who are these guys? What type of person joined the fight to war on drugs? Originally, I'm from Chicago, northern suburbs, Coke, Illinois. This is Jim Burke, who still works for the Boca Raton PD. Burke had become police officer, but he was really from a family of firefighters, and he wanted to be different. Went to LSU for four years. Actually received an athletic scholarship to Louisiana State University in gymnastics. So you were a gymnast at LSU? I was a gymnast at LSU. What uh, was your specialty? Pommel horse. I was just a specialist, so I only did one event. See, the police have other interests as well. This was the guy who was making moves on the pommel horse in college. And after college, Burke moved back home, and it was 1983. Couldn't find a job in Chicago, so I had friends in Florida. Florida in the uh, mid-80s was wide open. They were hiring law enforcement officers like crazy. So I came down here and stayed with a buddy of mine and got hired at the city of Boca Raton. Why were they hiring like that back then? You're talking the height of the drug craze. So, I mean, they needed officers. They needed the, the population was increasing. So they needed officers at a rate of 10, 20 per year. 
were your first impressions, if you can remember back then, relating to life down here in South Florida? Miami was a hopping area back in the 80s. I mean, you had a lot of the drug influence going on there. Boca Raton was more laid back, more of a retirement community. Was there any business related to the drug trade happening in Boca Raton? Yeah, you'd be naive. You didn't think that there wasn't any drug activity going on in the city of Boca Raton. You had younger people. Cocaine was very popular back then, so you had bars and stuff that people, I'm sure, were partaking in that type of illicit activity. Did you get a sense that it was still growing, though, that the city was changing, that the trade itself was continuing to balloon? I did because in 1988 I got selected to a multi-agency narcotics task force. So crack cocaine just became very popular at the time. So um, they would take officers from different communities and put them into like Riviera Beach, Florida. And uh, at that time I would do a lot of video purchasing of crack cocaine, drive around in a pickup truck with a camera and buy crack all day. How much crack were you buying back then? 20 cents piece, 10 cents piece, it's bent. You know, you just went up to people and they you know, throw a $20 bill and they run up to you and you make a quick exchange and you were on your way. Did a couple years on the road, midnight-wise and stuff like that, and I, I always had aspirations to become an investigator or a detective. So this opportunity came up and I grabbed it. Boca Raton is about 50 miles north of Miami and fairly sleepy in comparison. But since Boca is along the Atlantic coast as well, there's plenty of action to investigate in the drug trade. In my eyes, working narcotics and drug cases, you can basically take a lead from a telephone call and make a career case out of it. So yeah, it's the last bastion of law enforcement where it's pure. You're taking a lead and finding it and following it all the way through. Mr. Pelletier? Yes? Is this the voice of a federal prosecutor? <laughs> Former federal prosecutor. This is Paul Pelletier. Now, this wasn't a guy you'd predict would go after major drug traffickers in South Florida. Pelletier had grown up in a small town in southern Massachusetts, population 3,000. He had 10 brothers and sisters. His father managed the local Sears store. And when Pelletier was growing up, there were really only two things to do in town. Play hockey, and as he puts it, antagonize the police. We would do a lot of things to antagonize the police, but youthful indiscretion. Youthful, always youthful indiscretions, always involving either uh, raiding farm stands, throwing apples from an orchard at cars, the kind of youthful indiscretions that, uh, that one would expect in a small town in Massachusetts. Pelletier did not grow up a do-gooder, but he ended up going to law school. He actually paid his way through law school by joining up with the cops he had once antagonized because he had some sense of justice within him. I wanted to go out there and try and make a difference somewhere, and I figured the best way to try and make a difference was in the Department of Justice. What I wanted to do at that point was I wanted to try cases. I wanted to get in the court. I wanted to be a trial attorney, and I wanted to represent the United States of America. He gets out of law school in 1984, the same year that Miami Vice debuts on NBC. He gets a job at the DOJ in Washington, in the tax division. He spends four years there prosecuting cases in the South, and that's how he gets his first exposure to Miami. John, it's hard to believe, but at that time, money laundering wasn't a crime. So one of the main weapons a prosecutor had in liaison with the IRS was to attack an alleged trafficker's tax liability rather than following the undocumented cash that they were funneling through banks. The guy could run all the cash he wanted through the banks. But if he didn't pay his taxes, then Pelletier and the IRS could go after him. 
spent a lot of time in court with the judges in South Florida, and it was very clear to me that number one, it was a it was an exciting time to be there if you were a prosecutor because there was a lot of crime going on and a lot of drug crime and a lot of money passing through. I felt that this was an area where I could really thrive as a prosecutor. I'll tell you, in '88 when I decided to apply to the courts in South Florida to try to become an AUSA. The nine judges in South Florida, there were nine at the time, active judges, tried more cases in a year than the judges in the Central District, California, Southern District of California, Northern District of California, the Southern District of Texas, which is Houston, the Eastern District of New York, and the Southern District of New York. Now, I've just told you seven districts, then all of those districts combined, and that's over 50 judges, these nine judges would try more cases than all of those districts combined in 1988 when I went down there. Wow. It was like fast food. Yeah, it was incredible. When I went down there, an agent told me that you could swing a dead cat on any corner in Miami and hit at least five drug traffickers. Pelletier transfers out of D.C. and shows up in Miami late in 1988. At the time, Alex DeCubis is really going gangbusters, and he's working with Julio Nasser. Kevin Pedersen is dealing with his failing marriage and career, trying to figure out his next steps forward in life. So Pelletier shows up in Miami at the exact moment that Washington ratified the war on drugs. What did that mean? It meant a complete overhaul of sentencing for drug crimes. First of all, you had mandatory minimums, sentences that judges were required to hand down, and you had sentencing guidelines, which drastically increased the amount of time that convicted traffickers would be required to serve. The minimum mandatory requirements that came into effect in the late 80s essentially said that if you had 500 grams of cocaine, you did a five-year minimum mandatory. And if you had five kilos of cocaine, you did a 10-year minimum mandatory. The sentencing guidelines were even higher than that. In South Florida, for instance, if you had um, 10 kilos of cocaine, you could be sentenced to uh, up to 20 years. If you had 10 kilos, you could get 20 years in prison. And Alex DeCubis is importing thousands of kilos of cocaine at a time. Tons of cocaine. Yeah, he was completely off the charts. But hey, that was Miami. There were very few five-kilo cases. Most of the cases that we dealt with were 100 or more kilos. What kind of person would be caught with five kilos? Or more. In Miami, usually, um, if you had five kilos, you were a a low-level distributor. What if you had five kilos in Kansas City? In Kansas City, with five kilos, you'd be a kingpin. If you had 10 kilos of marijuana in, say, Kansas City, as Pelletier mentions, you'd get a 10-year sentence. In Miami, you wouldn't get any jail time. That's one reason why the government enacted these guidelines, so that they could make penalties uniform across the country. 30 years would be the highest sentence you could get under these new guidelines. And who would get that? Usually the leader of an organization. It's pretty simple to be a leader of an organized drug trafficking ring. You have to supervise five or more criminally culpable participants. That's it. One time. One time in an an organized ring. It had to be sort of an organized, well-run ring. And these five or more people could be... Driving a boat, driving a car, a plane, uh, uh, distributing. Could have one of a number of roles. And and in the enterprises or drug trafficking rings that we looked at, it was very easy to find five criminally culpable people. Most of them had 50 or more. 
How many organizations did you come across that had five or more people? Every one of them. How many separate smuggling groups were there? We used to joke that was that there was just one because they were all interrelated in some way. I would say in the 50s, at least 50 different large-scale smuggling groups in Miami at the time. The federal government also drastically increased the amount of resources allocated to investigating and prosecuting drug smugglers and distributors. So the new legislation has now made it illegal to launder the proceeds of the drug trade. Now for Pelletier and his colleagues, the most important new tool of the drug trade was something called Rule 35. Rule 35 was a vehicle by which prosecutors moved to reduce the sentences of drug traffickers or any defendant. But prior to 1986, prior to the Bail Reform Act, defendants themselves could move to reduce their sentences. But after 1986, only a prosecutor could. So when you add to that the fact that they were receiving drug traffickers who were convicted were receiving very large sentences, prosecutors now had the leverage to get people to cooperate because only prosecutors could reward cooperation with reductions in sentences. It was a huge paradigm shift that happened right about that time. Well, now we could really make people play ball. As an investigator, as a prosecutor, generally you catch at the, at, at the street level the people who are distributing or importing the, the drugs. And the only way to go up the chain or up the ladder is to get those people to cooperate. And we had real unique leverage now, real powerful leverage that didn't exist before. So it helped us go up the chain of the drug organization much more rapidly than in the past. So he was a young, sharp, energized guy with a bit of a blue-collar chip on his shoulder. He had come from a family of 10 kids. His father was the manager at the Sears and Roebuck. Hadn't gone to Harvard Law School. And Pelletier arrives in Miami, super energized to take on the drug war, right when the federal government hands a prosecutor a whole slew of new tools. From 1980 to 1990, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami doubled in size. Pelletier dives right in. There's plenty of action. He ends up in the narcotics section in the Miami U.S. Attorney's Office. In South Florida at that time, it was like drinking from a fire hose. It was constant arrests, constant people being brought in uh, for arraignment and charges. We worked with the DEA, the FBI, the IRS, Customs, and the Marshal Service. And he was having a great time doing it. At the time I went there, I was single, so um, there was a lot going on, and it was a lot of fun. Us prosecutors and us agents, we hung around together. For the most part, the activities almost almost invariably involved alcohol and and water sports, but one of the the local watering holes that all of us, the agents and prosecutors, used to hang out was a bar called uh, Tobacco Road. It was a famous place because on, on Friday nights, all, all the agents and all the prosecutors in Miami would hang out there and we would have tremendous, tremendous times, and um, some, of, I can, some of which I can tell you about, some of which I can't. But here was a guy who was dedicated to his work. What I found is that I loved being in the courtroom. I loved trying cases. Began to like putting the cases together. In other words, following the money, creating both the financial map of how the drug traffickers are working and the organizational map of, of who was in the 
drug organization. I loved putting those pieces together, mostly from a historical perspective. In other words, I loved recreating sort of how the crimes happened and then following the money and following the individuals to try and target all of the participants in the crime. I found that intriguing and I, and I love the, I love the idea of doing it. Pelletier and Jim Burke are about to come upon a career case. June 19th, 1988. Tell me about that day. I was a young investigator in the unit. We had information from a Blue Lightning Strike Force memo coming in that the possibility of a drug smuggling event was going to come into South Florida. This is Jim Burke. Our Marine unit was working on Father's Day and actually saw the boat come into the inlet and it followed it into a house in a very affluent neighborhood. And then we actually made the arrest at the time. It took a little while to figure out because the all the cocaine was in a hidden compartment. So it was a very busy Father's Day weekend. They seized 584 kilos, and they were trying to figure out who it belonged to. You don't know if it was Pablo Escobar. You didn't know if the Ochoas. You didn't know who it was. You know, so it was our goal to try to find out. They arrested a ton of people. They leaned on them, and they used the new tools for the war on drugs. Faced with serious sentences, people started talking. The first name we got really was probably Alex DeCubis, that he was a, a drug smuggler from North Miami Beach. Found out that he was from North Miami Beach, had a lot of friends. He was involved in a wrestling program down there. He went to college at the University of Georgia as a wrestler. He quit that and became a, a drug dealer. So from college, he started dealing dime bags of marijuana. Uh, there's incidents that he was involved in the sale and distribution of 250,000 quaaludes. So he became a drug dealer. Did you know much about Alex's uh, wrestling history? No, just that I heard there was a very good wrestler. I heard he was a state champ uh, here and went to the University of Georgia and wrestled his first year, but then his father committed suicide and just basically dropped out of school. That was Burke up in Boca. Meanwhile, Pelletier was working with a confidential informant. And at that point, no one knew that they were working the same crew. Here's Pelletier. What did the case look like to you in those first days? This case was different in the context of the amount, the sheer amount of cocaine that the organization had been successfully importing into the United States. What did your informant tell you? The informant that we had told us that basically he was involved in an organization that imported huge quantities of cocaine via freighter that would offload the cocaine in the Bahamas onto wait-and-go-fast boats. And he had infiltrated that organization. As I told you, the drug laws allowed us to sentence people to extraordinarily long periods of time, so it gave people a lot of incentive to cooperate. This was an individual who had been caught and was now cooperating in order to work off a sentence. Ultimately, Pelletier and Burke realized that they're working the same crew, and they put together a task force. DEA... Boca PD, Customs, U.S. Marshals, DOJ, all of them now focused on Alex DeCubis. And he doesn't even know anything about it. They even named the task force NOMAS, which was named after the famous Roberto Duran fight, his second fight against Sugar Ray Leonard. The logo of the task force was a boxing glove. Duran famously 
had said no moss or no more, and the fight was ended. Threw in the towel. And let me just segue here to Julio Cesar Nasser David, who was definitely not throwing in the towel in 1989, because on a normal load that year, Nasser wants to pack the ship to the gills. He wants to put more than six tons of pure Colombian cocaine on the Nerma. And this meant that Alex had to hire another boat captain in order to accommodate all the extra cocaine. And this guy was an informant. He had been roped into the NOMAS task force. Here's Paul Pelletier. DEA funded a trawler. They helped the confidential informant lease a trawler that was going to go out and receive cocaine from the freighter the evening of the offload. The trawler could was big enough to take about a thousand kilos of cocaine. They also notified the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard committed a significant number of assets to actually observe and monitor the offload. Our cooperator had told us that the offload was going to be off of Stirrup K in the Bahamas in specifically July 28th of 1989. So they're all set up to record the offload and catch these guys in the act. One of the resources that they recruited was a secret Coast Guard helicopter that would fly over and take, for the first time, take live pictures of the offload using a forward-looking infrared or FLIR camera. To my knowledge, no offload, no freighter offload certainly had been filmed or observed in real time with the use of a forward-looking infrared camera before this. So everything has come to a head. Julio Nasser has made Alex de Cubis vulnerable, and the NOMOS task force has applied all the new weapons at their disposal to catch these guys. And this will only lead to the new wild chapter in Alex de Cubis' story. Thank you for listening to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. Next on Pin Kings, episode 13, Chasing the Chameleon. Oh, I was highly impressed with the DEA. Just so happened one of the guys on the wrong side was his wrestling teammate. These two guys, these two best friends, came to that proverbial fork in the road. One went left, one went right. We were often, what I would say is a hot cup of coffee away from Alex. He was on his way. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app or download and listen on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts.